Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to The Grove. If this is your first time with us or first time back in a while, it is so good to see you. My name is Stephen, and I'm one of the pastors here. And you picked a really good Sunday to be here, especially if you've got lots of questions, because we are in week two of a sermon series called Got Questions. And the reason that we're in week two of a sermon series called Got Questions is because we recognize that most of us, we got questions. But sometimes we've grown up in a church tradition or we've had kind of the experience at church where your questions aren't something that are actually welcomed. They're discouraged or the answers that are given to the questions that you bring are a little unsatisfying and they don't really kind of get to the heart of what you're kind of wrestling with and wondering about. And so the inevitable kind of effect of that on most of us is that we either stop asking questions in church or we just kind of let go of our faith altogether because it, it fails to address the, you know, the issues, the crises of faith that we have in our life. And, and we think that's a tragedy. And we want to be a place where we encourage questions, where you don't have to show up and kind of, like Allie mentioned last week, unscrew your head and place it below your seat. That this can be a place where we acknowledge that sometimes life gets hard. And sometimes in those experiences, it causes us to, to wonder to wrestle, to doubt, to question what's happening and is this supposed to be what's happening and why is it happening? And so that's what the goal of this series is, is to begin the process of kind of normalizing the questions that we might ask in our life. Now, one of the things that happens when you start to get comfortable asking questions about faith and life and kind of the big you know, existential questions that you wrestle with is you want answers because there's this kind of nagging discomfort that happens when you experience these questions in your own life, when you've experienced tragedy or loss or some kind of cosmic injustice that you've noticed in the world. When you experience these things and you don't have an answer to it, it's, it's unsettling and it's difficult. And so one of the things that we tend to do is we tend to seek out places, institutions, people, you know, mentors, guides who can provide us with nice, easy, you know, kind of solvable questions, some type of answer that kind of ties a bow around the entire thing. And you can find these churches, these places, these organizations and institutions all throughout the world. In fact, one of the things that you might notice about the way that our world and culture and society is moving to is we're coming up with lots of really quick, really easy answers. The reason is because this is what we as a people are hungry for. We want answers to our questions. The problem is, is if you kind of dig into some of these answers, they don't actually satisfy. They actually create more questions when you explore them than they actually solve. And so one of the things that I've experienced most as a pastor is this wrestling that people have with nice and easy answers to questions that they bring to church that they have about their faith. I was having a conversation just last week with a woman, and she was wrestling with some really kind of big theological concepts and issues that impacted her and have impacted her life for over a decade. She's wrestling and struggling with kind of some of these questions about how she should live her life in relationship to some of these things that she was taught and that she has grown up believing. And one of the things that she's doing is she's in this process of inquiring, of wrestling, and trying to find answers to some of the some of the uncertainties that she holds about life and about how she's supposed to live it. And she goes to the Bible for a lot of her answers, which is what most of us do. 
the problem is she's been given some really simple answers to some of these really difficult questions. And they're not quite satisfying. And so she and I were in this conversation, and she was asking me about a particular passage and what it meant related to the issue that we were talking about. And I said, you know, I don't know. And she kind of looked at me funny, and I said, well, you know, I mean, I would have to kind of investigate and explore and unpack this, and I'd have to kind of look into the context of that particular passage of Scripture and the time period it was written in the original audience and the intent of the author and all this stuff, kind of go into the whole pastor thing. And, and she just kind of looked at me with this puzzled look, and I said, this doesn't, doesn't seem like I'm satisfying your question. And she says, no, it, actually, that's the first time I've ever heard a pastor say they don't know. And to me, I was kind of taken back. Um, I got a little insecure because I was like, oh, well, this is probably indicative of the type of pastor that you're having this conversation with. So, you know, you got to take it with a grain of salt. But then after I thought about it a little bit more and I was kind of, de- you know, downloading and debriefing this conversation with some friends, it actually made me really sad because it meant that this person had grown up in a tradition where the people who were the leaders and the guides, the ones, the voices that she was supposed to trust had every answer to every question that she had. And maybe they're out there, and if so, you should go to that church. But here at this church, I don't have the answers to all of the questions. Let me just be real upfront about that. I don't. And I think that's the problem with some of the big questions in life is I actually, I don't know that they have easy answers. I don't think that they have these nice, neat little answers that you can take home that just solve all of the questions in our life. Because we know this. We know there are these questions that exist that we wrestle with, that we struggle through, that we have maybe come to different conclusions about kind of how we should think and feel about it, but it's never been fully settled. I experienced this most as a pastor in moments of loss, suffering, and death. When I'm in a hospital waiting room, or I'm graveside, or I'm talking with the family after the unexpected loss of a loved one, that's when it's most notable. Anytime someone's experienced some tragedy in their life, whether it's the loss of a loved one, the loss of a relationship, the loss of a dream or a hope or a career, anytime that you've had to say goodbye to something that you cared about and loved, this is often the time when people start to wrestle with this question about why. They want to know why it happened, specifically why it happened to them. Some of you, maybe you're a little more philosophical in your approach and your kind of scope of life, and so you wrestle with these why questions on behalf of all of humanity, but, you know, why is there suffering in the world? But my experience is most of us, we wrestle with this problem of suffering within our worlds. Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to my loved one, to my family? Why now? Why God? And in, in the wrestling of it, Really what we're asking is whether or not God's just. Because in my experience with the questioning that we have in these moments is we don't really wonder about why bad things happen to bad people, at least in our own judgment, or why good things happen to good people. That all fits into our worldview. That all makes sense in the way that we understand how the world works. Bad people, bad things should happen to. Good people, good things should happen to. The problem comes when we feel like this law of justice that the universe that we believe that God is supposed to order the universe according to stops being true. Something unfair, unjust, you know, hard, difficult, tragic has happened to, in our view, a good person, oftentimes ourselves or a loved one. This is the moment that we start to wrestle with this question because we have these assumptions that God is just 
and that God orders the universe according to this justice. And so when we experience these things that don't fit into our understanding of how a just God who's ordered a just universe should operate, we start, we start to wrestle, we start to wonder, we start to doubt. Maybe some of you, you're here today and it's been a while since you've been in church because of this very issue. Or maybe you have loved ones who have left the church or left the faith because it didn't feel like God was doing God's job, that God stopped caring about you because if God cared about you, if God loved you, if God was good, then God would have what God didn't do. Well, for us, this is not a new question that we wrestle with. In fact, this is a question that people have wrestled with all over the world. In fact, they do you know, some of these surveys and studies you know, every couple of years. And as a pastor, I'm kind of curious as the answers to them. But you know, they asked people a couple of years ago, kind of this nationwide survey, if you, could ask one, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? And way at the top of the, of the list. Far and away, the most common question that people want to ask is some version of why do bad things happen to good people? And specifically, oftentimes, why are bad things happening to me? That's the question that we could ask God one question that we'd want to know the answer to. And again, this isn't a new question. This isn't a new idea or a wondering or existential crisis that that we've just uncovered in the 20th or the 21st century. This is a question as old as time. This is a question that people have been wrestling with throughout the centuries and the millennium. And in fact, I think maybe... More than any other question, this is the question that the Bible wrestles with most, is this, this issue, this problem of suffering in the world and in the world of people. Michael talked about it in the scripture that he read uh, in the middle of, kind of our worship set right before Great Is Thy Faithfulness. God, why did this happen? Why did you allow this to happen? This doesn't feel like how things were supposed to go. It feels like the events that I'm experiencing have violated the law of justice that I believe that you're supposed to order the universe according to. These are these existential crises that you see and you read all throughout the Psalms. Why God? How long, O Lord, will I be in this place? They echo the very same questions that we wrestle with as people. And what ends up happening, though, is in our attempts to find some solution, some satisfaction to this crisis and this wrestling that we have, we come up with sometimes overly simplistic answers. Or we come to this place where we judge God and we accuse God of being unfair, cruel, unjust, or, you know, non-existent. And so what I want to do today to help us avoid that trap of these overly simplistic answers that don't satisfy or this accusation of God that leaves us further from our faith is I want to look at a story uh, it may not be a surprise that we're going to look at this story today, but the story that we're going to look at is the story of Job. And if any of you have ever gone through a period of difficulty in your life, my guess is one of your religious friends has pointed you to the story of Job, hopefully as some sort of comfort, knowing that, hey, if you just hang on there, everything's going to be okay. Well, I actually don't think that's the point of the story of Job. I think the point of the story of Job is to do exactly what we do, is to wrestle with this question of why is there suffering in the world? Is God just? And has God ordered the universe according to God's justice? And if so, then why is my world looking the way that it does? You see, Job attempts to answer this question that was really common at the time. It's the same question that is common at our time. 
And so Job is trying to name and give voice to this kind of existential crisis that people have been wrestling with for thousands of years. And so what it does is it kind of constructs this fairy tale, this myth. Best evidence tells us that Job is not a historical figure, and this is not a historical factual account about a man named Job. The way that it's set up is, would have alerted and kind of clued in the early audience that this was kind of this metaphor or this fable that was meant to teach a greater point than just the facts and the details of the story. So the story of Job starts off in the very first chapter, in the very first verse. There once was a man named Job who lived in a land called Uz. Or Uz, I don't know how you pronounce it. You don't need to, it's not the point. But that's not a real place, at least as far as our kind of archaeological evidence can tell us. So the early listeners of this story would have recognized that long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, and then the story you know, begins. And so what you have is this man that the author of Job describes as righteous, blameless, without sin. He would have been the best of the best of the best. He was bright, intelligent, capable, successful, wealthy, very pious. He was a good person. He was the exact kind of person that if you believed in a just God who ordered the universe according to God's justice, then nothing bad would have ever happened to this guy because that's how the world works. If you're good, then good things happen to you. If you're bad, bad things happen to you. And Job was as good as anybody has ever been. And then the story takes us to kind of this heavenly celestial realm where God and his cohort of officers are kind of navigating and managing the universe. And this is kind of a common scene that you see throughout the Old Testament that kind of clues us in as to how people thought about how God operated the world back in that day. God's kind of got his chief of staff gathered around and they're talking about the universe and there begins this conversation between God and this character described as Hasatan, which is not a name, but a title. And the title is The Satan. And this literally means the accuser. This is kind of like the prosecuting attorney. And the conversation between God and The Satan goes like this. God's bragging about how righteous how good Job is. And the Satan is kind of retorting back saying, yeah, that's only because you've really blessed him. If you stopped blessing him, if things went bad in his life, then he'd stop being righteous. There's this direct kind of association and assumption that, well, the reason that good people are good is because good things happen to them. And when good things happen to you, it's easy to be righteous. It's easy to be pious and religious when nothing wrong happens in your life. But what happens when something goes wrong in your life? Will these righteous people stop being righteous? God says no. The accuser, kind of the prosecuting attorney, says, oh, they will, just wait. And so kind of this wager is made that allows the Satan to kind of inflict damage and harm into Job's life. So Job loses all of his possessions, all of his wealth, all of his success and achievement. His children are killed. And then eventually it gets to the place where Job is sitting in a pile of ash, his head and beard shaved in this place of posture of mourning and grief. And his body is covered in sores and he has a broken shard of clay or pottery and he is scraping these sores to relieve some of the pain. Hope you didn't eat breakfast this morning. But this is kind of the place where the rest of the story of Job jumps off. So we have this little narrative that sets up this whole kind of dynamic 
that is really allowing for what happens next in the book of Job. And for the next 33 chapters, there's this series of conversations between Job and a couple of his friends. Job in his place of mourning, his life having fallen apart, unsure why, not aware of kind of the cosmic wager between God and the Satan. He's kind of sitting there trying to put together the pieces of why things have happened the way that they have. Job is asking the very same questions that you've asked in hospital rooms, in graveside, in the privacy of your bedroom, laying awake at night, staring at the ceiling. Job's wrestling with the same questions. And then Job's friends show up to sit with him in mourning. This is kind of where that Jewish tradition of sitting Shiva for seven days in silence comes from. This is what Job's friends do. They show up in solidarity and support to him. But like most of our friends in moments of tragedy and sorrow and loss and crisis in our life, they can't help but chime in trying to be helpful and offering explanations as to why things have happened. Because that's the big question. That's the question that Job is wrestling with. That's the question that they're wrestling with is why. Why did all of this happen? Why would something so terrible happen to a man so good? And so they do what our friends do in these moments. They offer kind of the best of the folk wisdom of the time. They're offering these ideas kind of like our friends do. What ends up happening though is these offerings of folk wisdom oftentimes are really unsatisfying. Sometimes they're frustrating, they're irritating, they're unhelpful. Maybe you have offered this at a, at a moment of someone's sorrow or loss. It's not out of ill intent, but ultimately it creates more problems and questions than it does good. So in the loss, an unexpected loss of a loved one, you say, well, everything happens for a reason. Or God just needed another angel in heaven, which the sentiment, the emotion behind those offerings is genuine. It's sincere. But the questions it leaves us with are really troubling. This is the same thing that happens in Job's case. Job's friends begin to offer some answers as to why. And again, the whole point of the book of Job is to wrestle with this big question that we're all wrestling with. And so there's two lines of reasoning that happen again and again throughout this conversation between Job and his friends. This is the point that Job's friends are trying to make. God is just. God orders the universe according to this justice. And so if something bad happens in your life, Job, it's because you did something wrong. So Job is guilty according to the friends. Maybe there's some secret sin that Job is unaware of or the friends are unaware of, but that has to be the answer because God is just and God orders the universe according to his justice. So Job's guilty. Job asserts and defends his own righteousness. He says, I'm innocent. And if I'm innocent, that means that God has not ordered the universe according to God's justice, which means that God is not just. And so God is guilty. And this is kind of the legal argument back and forth. Who's innocent and who's guilty? Is it Job or is it God? And they go round and round and round for like 35 chapters of this kind of strange, complex, dense poetry. If you've ever tried to read the book of Job, this is usually where you give up. And then at the end of all of this, Job is frustrated. Job is angry. Job is so tired of these bad arguments. And he just flat out demands audience with God. He would have written in bold font when asked, if you could ask God one question, he would have demanded his day in court with God. 
He says, God, why? Why would this happen? How could you allow this to happen? I have been blameless. I have been righteous. I haven't done anything wrong to deserve all of the things that I have suffered. God, how could you allow this to happen? You must not be just, and you must not order the universe according to your justice. And then this very dramatic whirlwind, God shows up. You know, it's kind of like, you know, the witch and the, you know, like the smoke and the cloud and all this. This is kind of what happens, at least according to Scripture. We don't know. But God shows up in this big whirlwind, and he begins to speak to Job. And what he takes Job on is this kind of journey throughout the cosmos, back to the origins of how the universe was created. This is what God says to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place so that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and it is dyed like a garment. Light is withheld from the wicked and their uplifted arm is broken." You say, I have no idea what that means. I don't either. But other people who are smarter than me do. And basically what God is trying to do is use kind of a rhetorical argument, a rhetorical device against Job to say, listen, you have no ability to understand how complex the universe is. You weren't there when I created it. You weren't there when I made the heavens and the earth, when I orchestrated and arranged everything in the celestial bodies, when I built the world the way that I've designed it, you weren't there. There's so much that you're unaware of. And then what God does next is he takes him not into this grand sense, but into this very specific sense. And he begins to describe the grazing habits of mountain goats and how the deer give birth to their young and the flight patterns of hawks and the feeding patterns of lions and the grazing patterns of wild donkeys. This is what God goes on to say. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch to give birth to their offspring and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go forth and do not return to them. Is it by your wisdom that the hawk soars and spreads its wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes its nest on high? It lives on the rock and makes its home in the fastness of the rocky crag. From there it spies the prey, its eyes see it from far away. So what's God's point in all this? What God is doing is taking Job on this virtual tour of the universe, starting from the farthest reaches down to the most specific and intimate details. And God is letting Job know, against the accusations of Job and his friends, that God has his eye on every detail of the entire universe, that it is vast and complex, and God is aware of every single detail. God has not fallen off duty. God has, stopped, has not stopped being responsive to the attention of all of the intimate things, that God is far more in charge and in command and aware of the universe and the way that it works than we could possibly ever understand. God is 
naming, acknowledging a limitation in both Job and his friends' vantage point. They only see things from their experience. They only see things from their lens of what's happening in their immediate life. God's saying there is so much more going on than you can possibly understand, than you can possibly comprehend. This is no different, parents, than maybe when your child is small and they ask why about something, why can't they do something, or why did something happen? And you know that you could try to explain it to them, but really they just lack the ability to comprehend some of the nuances, some of the complexity, some of the reasons why things have to be the way that they are. And so what do you do? You resort to, because I said so. That's what, that's what we do in those moments when we know that there's a reason, but they're not capable of understanding. This is kind of what God is doing in this moment. He's like, well, it's because I said so, because you're not actually capable of understanding the way that the universe actually works. And then there's this strange moment where God begins to describe kind of two mythical creatures, Leviathan and Behemoth. And you say, okay, well, why would God do this? Well, what God, I think, is trying to do in this moment is to describe that while the world that God has created is good and it is beautiful and there's so much goodness that comes from it, it is still wild and it is still dangerous and difficult things still happen in this world. It is not free from suffering. It is not immune from pain or hardship. But that's the nature of this world that God has created. It is both good and dangerous. And so in the midst of kind of this tension between these two poles, God is saying there is so much more going on than you can understand. And the way that the universe is constructed is not designed to eliminate all suffering. That is not the world that I've created. I have not created a world that prevents all suffering from happening. Suffering is a reality that exists within this world. But the world that I've created still is good. And it's still beautiful. And Job, you're just not capable of fully understanding all of this. And so in this moment, Job acknowledges his own limitations in understanding and he kind of goes before God in an apology, in humility, and this is what Job says. He says, Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then the way that the story of Job concludes is God affirms Job's questions. But he invites Job in to trust the character and the wisdom of God. And then God criticizes Job's friends for the simple, easy answers that they offer that actually speak incorrectly about God. And so what you see is not this final, dramatic, climactic conclusion to why bad things happen to good people. The question that the book of Job builds its whole story based on is not a question that ultimately it answers in the end. What we see in the book of Job, what we see in the story of Job, is God acknowledges that there is a way that this world works according to God's justice, but it's too vast, too complicated for our understanding. And God doesn't just send us off and say, well, too bad, it's because I said so. What he does is he acknowledges the pain and the suffering that Job carries. He affirms Job's wrestling with these questions of why. 
he acknowledges that what he wants is for Job to continue to come to him through prayer, to voice his pain, to voice his hurt, to voice his confusion about why life happens the way that it does. And God meets him there. God shows up in that place to affirm Job's pain, to affirm Job's confusion and struggle with this suffering that he experiences. But he also invites Job to trust him, to trust in God's character and to trust in God's wisdom. And ultimately, I think that's the invitation that God extends to each one of us. Because the danger in these moments of suffering is when we try to come up with a convenient answer, a convenient solution, an explanation for why things happen. We either oversimplify it, we come up with an answer that actually doesn't satisfy, or we end up accusing God of being unfair, unjust, or unloving. But what I love about one of the last lines in the story of Job is it says, and Job's life was better at the end than it was in the beginning. Now, what often happens in this is we take the point of the story of Job is that if, we're just, just, if we just persevere through suffering and difficulty, then we'll get everything back twofold. Because that's what's hap- what happens in Job's story. But there's not a connection between Job's perseverance and God's grace in that moment. Those things are totally unrelated and unconnected. God is gracious to Job not because of something. That's how grace works. It's unearned. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. But I think there's a promise and a hope at the end of the story of Job is that God has not given up on us. God is still active in the universe, even if it doesn't make sense to us. And that we can trust in him that our ending will be better than our beginning. And so if you came here this morning with a bunch of questions as to why, you likely have not got them answered today. And that's intentional. It's because it's likely that the answers are far more complicated than we have time for or that I even have the ability to articulate. But what I hope you leave with is a, is a reminder that God is still present and active in the world, that God invites you to bring your frustrations, your anger, your resentment, your frustration and confusion, to bring it to God, to wrestle and to struggle with it in prayer. And then I hope that you receive the invitation to be able to let go of some of it and trust in God's character and God's wisdom. Let me pray for our time together this morning. I'll invite the band to come up and we'll sing one more song together. Gracious God, we are reminded in this moment that even when life gets hard, that you are still good. God, we are reminded in the story of Job that even though we struggle and we wrestle and we wonder and we don't have answers, that you invite us into deeper relationship with you, to trust you in greater measure, and to let go of the efforts to work out all of the answers and explanations for why things happen the way that they do. God, ultimately, that's a little dissatisfying. And so in the vacancy of an answer, in the absence of an explanation or a solution, Will you replace it with trust and with hope that the ending of our story can be better than the beginning? We know you are good and we know you love us and we know you are with us every step of the way. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.